Hello, dreamers, and welcome back to the show. This is the long-awaited interview with attorney Bob Mata. Back in July, over the course of four episodes, we covered the case of native Californian, former doctor, and current death row inmate in the state of Nebraska, Anthony Garcia. These were episodes 189 through 192. Bob was Garcia's defense attorney, and I became acquainted with him through social media, not necessarily because of this case, but because he happened to decide earlier this year to try his hand at podcasting. And he came into it all with something completely unique to him. His dad represented one of the most notorious serial killers in American history, John Wayne Gacy. When Bob was 21, his father gifted him a set of cassette tapes, which he basically shoved into his closet for a couple of decades. And it wasn't until the advent of the podcast did he finally have some good use for these tapes, which are interviews between his father and Gacy himself. And it has been brought to us in the form of his show called The Fence Diaries. And the plan is when he's wrapped with the Gacy season or seasons, he is going to bring you his side of the Anthony Garcia quadruple murder case. If you listen to my series about it, which, by the way, are some of the most downloaded episodes this year, you may have come away thinking that Garcia is guilty as all get out. And full disclosure, I do still think he's guilty, but Bob would say to any of us, not so fast, hold your opinions until you hear his side of the story. And you'll get a little bit about it in this interview. You'll hear some of his arguments in favor of his innocence, but he's, of course, going to save the good stuff for his own show. So I recorded this interview over Zoom. Bob comes across a little louder than I do, and fortunately, he does most of the talking. I tried to do my best to even out the audio to make sure that you wouldn't have his voice blast your ears out. It took me two days to edit this, which is way more work than I put into a regular episode of my own because I don't edit. I just record straight through and throw some music in there, and that's that. If I mess up while I'm recording, I just pause it and do over. So in this case, my editing is more like butchering, and it's pretty choppy. I mean, I did the best that I could, and it might suck, but whatever. It is what it is. You might have a little bit of a hard time hearing some of what I'm saying, especially if our voices are overlapping, but I think you'll get the gist of it, and you can thank me later for not letting Bob's voice smash out your eardrums. All right, here is our interview. Hello, everyone. Today, I have a special guest on the show. It's been a long time since anyone has sat down to talk with us before COVID even. So I'm really glad that he and I have connected. He was a pivotal part of a murder case that we covered on California Dreamy back in July. It was episodes 189 through 192 entitled Dr. Serial Killer, who was a man by the name of Anthony Garcia. He's been convicted of four murders that took place five years apart in Omaha, Nebraska. And his defense attorney has been so kind as to offer to tell us more about his role as Garcia's attorney. Not only was he Garcia's defense attorney, he also produces and hosts a podcast of his own called Defense Diaries, which we will also talk about. Bob Mata and his wife, Allison, are law partner, partners. They're based in Chicago. 
Bob, I want to thank you so much for wanting to talk with me tonight about this case. Oh, my pleasure, Roseanne. I'm, I'm thankful you're, you're having me. It's, it's nice to join you. Great. Thank you. And why don't you tell the listeners about yourself, who you are, a little bit of background about you and Allison and, and your dad as well and his role in, in this case that we're going to talk about, his role in you becoming a defense attorney yourself. Cool. Um, yeah, so a little bit about me. Um, married, going on 15 years. Uh, I have four kids, um, ranging from 27 down to nine. So, uh, you know, a lot of kids. Um, I ended up, I, I went to college, and before I went to law school, I was a social worker um, for five years, <laughs> and uh, which was very fulfilling work um, in terms of helping people. But um, because it's a, a woman-dominated field and because women get screwed all the time, uh, of course, it was grossly underpaid uh, and undervalued in society, uh, despite the fact that it's an incredibly important function, um, I believe. So uh, I kind of knew I was going to go to law school, uh, but I wasn't feeling it right out of college. You know, I wanted to work. And, um, you know, so I did that for, you know, like I said, four to five years and decided that, you know, that was the time. So I applied, took the LSAT and decided to go to law school. My, my father was happy um, because he is uh, an attorney as well, uh, but he had never really kind of pushed me to do it. Um, I mean, not like on its face. <laughs> it was going it like there was always like the underlying, uh, you know, kind of like I, I felt like expectation that I would go, um, you know, so I fought it for as long as I could. And then ultimately I ended up there. And so, yeah, I, I went to uh, a school in Chicago called Chicago Kent, pretty highly regarded in, in our area, not very well known, probably nationally, but it's, um, you know, I'd say behind University of Chicago and Northwestern. It's a little dispute with Loyola, but I feel like we're probably, you know, it was like probably the third best law school in the state. Um, you know, so I went there, graduated in 2001 and uh, hung a shingle. I met my wife, Allison, there in law school. Um, we were friends for probably the first couple of years. And, you know, it's one of those things in law school where they, you know, when you when you go in, you really do kind of hunker down with you know, your, your fellow classmates, because it really is kind of a war, um, in terms of like kind of a war of attrition in terms of people dropping out. And it's, it's, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of reading. It's a lot of pressure. You know, you're spending a ton of money to go to law school. So it's like, you know, you, you feel that, you know, and I was a little bit older going in, like, I think I was 27 when I started, you know, so I was like looking to be, you know, about 30 when I finished. So, you know, most kids get out of college and go straight to law school. So they're getting out of law school and they're 25, you know? So for me, it's kind of a different track, you know, like there was some thoughts on whether or not I was going to go to night school and continue to work during the day. And ultimately I just decided to um, pull the trigger and go like full-time during the day, just to kind of get it done with, you know? So we met, um, she convinced me and she, she's from Philadelphia, but she happened to be, her family was living in um, the Chicagoland area uh, while she was in law school. So that was how, how we had ended up meeting and, and she had um, landed on going to Kent because her family was um, from Philadelphia. They were a East Coast family. So like during law school, I think in our last year, her family ended up 
relocating back home. And, you know, like that last summer, she went out and studied for the bar exam and took the Pennsylvania bar. And we were kind of like in the middle of the relationship, you know? So it was like, right at that point, we were kind of like, uh, you know, what are we going to do? Are we staying together? Are we not? Whatever, whatever. I took the Illinois bar, both passed our bars. And then like, right after we passed the bar, she like calls me up and she's like, well, my dad's going to give us seed money if you want to come out here and start a firm. I'm like, I just took the bar. <laughs> you know, it's like, I, I don't want to study for the bar again. It's like, cause, but you know, she convinced me to do it. I flew out there and I had never even been to Philly, you know? So, but I, you know, coming out of the divorce of my first wife, cause I had married uh, my college sweetheart, didn't have kids with her. And, you know, and I was getting a lot of shit from my family about, you know, me kind of ending that relationship. So it was kind of like a thing where I, like, I didn't mind getting out of Dodge. So um, she convinced me to move out there. I went out there, took the bar, didn't feel the pressure, you know, because I had passed the Illinois bar. So it was like a completely different thing, you know, like when I was taking the Illinois bar, I'm like, oh my God, if I don't pass, it's like going to be a nightmare, you know? So it's like, you feel different pressure. So I was like, well, you know, if I don't pass it, I'll just go back to Illinois. <laughs> so ended up passing. Uh, we, we opened up a shop, hung a shingle out there, practice out there for about four years. I hated it. Um, I'm a Midwest, you know, you know what? It's like, I don't want to like cast judgment on all of the East coast, but like just kind of fundamentally how the people are, uh, they're just different. You know, like the, like the people, like the lawyer, it, it, I come from a Midwest, you know, upbringing and we're just kind of like fundamentally nicer people. Like it just, you know, like we say hi to each other and we're, you know, like in, in New York and Philly, it wasn't like that, you know, and brotherly love. Yeah. Not so much. Like our first oh. partner ended up coming on a, on a Saturday and he stole all of our files. So we had like no. 160 accident files that we had worked because we, when we went into practice, we're like, we need like a mentor, like, a, you know, we want an older attorney because we don't know what the hell we're doing because law school is not that, that it does like the practicality of pra uh, practicing law is not taught. It's like black letter law. And this is what you need to know to pass the bar. That is the goal of law school. So like, they don't teach you how to practice law. That's why it's so scary. Like just going into your own, you know, practice coming right out of law school, having no idea procedurally how to do anything you know it's like it, it was it was you know it was it was overwhelming so you know we decided to to try to coax an older attorney to come in with with us and kind of mentor us and this guy was like an ambulance chaser you know and i was looking for like a litigator i wanted somebody like my dad you know who had been a trial lawyer because alice and i both knew we wanted to be trial lawyers and yeah this guy just came in Allison and this guy did not get along. <laughs> like I, I was like in the middle office and the two of them were like, had, had me like sandwiched and they would just scream at each other like all day, every day. It's like they did, they were like oil and, and water, you know, they just did not mix. And I guess he couldn't take it. Came in, like I said, he stole all the files. He left us like five. And then while we didn't know that was going on, he called all the clients. So it became, like a, an attorney selection thing where he got to, you know, basically say, Oh, do you want to go with the two kids? You don't know what they're doing or do you want to hire the guy who's been doing it for 40 years? You know? So when we sued him to try to get our business back, you know, the court's like, it, it was a client, you know, it was an attorney selection issue at that point. You know, they, they he made the call, they made their choice. You know, it's like, I can't do anything about it. 
So he basically like destroyed the business. So I'm like, all right, I'm going back to Illinois. You know, I talked to her into coming back and then we started our firm out here. You know, that kind of led up to, you know, the case that you talked about, you know, we were probably in practice for, let's see, that was 2016. So, I mean, we were probably in practice for 10 years. For those of you who are not familiar with me or my podcast, um, my father uh, back in 1978 was one of John Wayne Gacy's trial attorneys, him and Sam Amaranti. And that was kind of a, a whirlwind case. I mean, at the time, it was certainly the biggest case of its type. And certainly on that, like a national level, like Dean Coral, that case had happened in Houston, like, and he was shot and killed in 72. So, you know, it, like they kind of overlapped in the sense that like Gacy... Kind of started. No, I think Coral was killed in '73. So then, then Gacy like purportedly started killing in '72. So there was like a year overlap before like Dean Coral was killed by one of his accomplices who shot him. You know, fast forward to '78. I'm visiting my father because my parents were split. The case breaks in Chicago, hits the news, and immediately like it, I like in going back to the Dean Coral thing, I had never heard of the guy until I started this podcast, which is so bizarre to me. I like, I know so much about so many serial killers and I literally had never heard of that guy. And, and it's so ironic because there's so many similarities between kind of his MO and like how Gacy did it. So they had both a podcast and a, a streaming docuseries called uh, the clown and the candy man, which in that particular documentary, they're trying to show the potential connections between that they maybe these two like knew of each other and were in kind of like a network of serial killers together. I don't think so. I think that, you know, with the lack of communication, because everything was just different in 78, you know, it's not like you were hopping on the dark web and having some kind of, uh, you know, secret conversations with each other, you know, it's like, it, it's just like the, the communication wasn't back then anything even remotely close to what it is now, you know? So it would have been like mm -hmm. telephone calls, like how, how you find in Dean Court, you know, it just, I, I think it's a non-starter. So, you know, 78 kind of fast forward to that again. Um, again, my parents are split. I'm in town for Christmas break. Gacy gets arrested on December 21st. I'm visiting my dad. We're sitting in his living room in his little apartment with me, him, and my uncle. And, you know, Sam and Maranti comes on the screen, and my dad's like, oh, my God, I know him. And he's like, he's like, should I call him to see if he needs help? And, I'm, you know, I'm like, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm like 10. You know, oh, it's like, oh, okay. I was about to say help. <laughs> yeah. I had no idea. It's like, he's like, oh, yeah, you know, I think you really encouraged me. I'm like, I, I didn't know, man. It's like I saw a guy on TV, and, you know, he's like, should I do something? I'm like, yeah, be on TV. You know, not having any understanding of what the hell was going on. So, he called, or I think he sent uh, Western Union, like either that night or the next day, um, asking Sam if he needed help. Because Sam was a young attorney. He was like 34. In that case, at that time, was just the biggest of its kind. You know, I mean, they were, at that time, they called it the case of the century. And I think even 40 years later, it's probably a top 10 to 15, like, case in American, jur you know, criminal jurisprudence. So it's it's... It's when I, you know, I mean, you're still talking about it, you know, 40 years. It's one of those yeah, cases that yeah. just never goes when away. I listened to um, Defense Diaries, what I didn't realize is how much the um, investigation kind of missed all these opportunities, stop yes. him early on. It's so brutal. It's, you know, and like, I didn't know that either until I started doing the pod, you yeah. know, and then when I started digging through all the police reports and I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> I'm like, either they were just, 
completely incompetent or complicit, you know, because there's, there's a lot of people out there. Um, um, same thing happened with the, what's his face in Milwaukee? Uh, Dahmer. Jeffrey Dahmer. Yeah. yeah. They, they, I don't think they wanted to get involved if it had something to do, if it was like, oh, he's with this, this man is being with this other man. And right. They just want to stay away from it, you know? Yeah. If there was like any kind of gay factor to it, they just mm-hmm. like steered you know, completely steered clear of it. You know, like all these cops that I've interviewed kind of certainly acknowledge that that was the sent, you know, the sentiment back then. And I, it was kind of stone age in terms of thinking back then. It's like, you know, gays were seen as deviants back then as, you know, it was like a, a lifetime ago. And, you know, it's, it's just like, it's comports with like every other part of our society, you know, every, minority of any kind whether it be race color creed sexual orientation is always maligned and, and treated like second-class citizens and it's always been that way in this country so it's back in the 70s it's like everyone was closeted so um you know it just wasn't you couldn't be who you were you know which is i, I can't imagine how sad that would be to live that life, you know, to, you know, have to to not be able to be who you are fundamentally, you know, is um pretty sad. So, so my dad gets on that case, handles it. Fast forward to my 21st birthday, gives me the box. The box has the tapes. I'm like, what are these? And he's like, well, those are my taped interviews with Gacy. And I'm like, really? You know, I didn't know he had them. Like it wasn't like his prized possession. It wasn't, you know, something that he'd talk about all the time. Like I have these tapes, (laughs) you know, I've got all these tapes, these secret tapes, you know, it's like, I had no clue he had them. I think I just put them in the top of a closet (laughs) for, I think probably like 15 or 20 years. And then I think he took them and then he went with his then girlfriend uh, and she helped him transcribe all of them. So like, I never listened to them. Like when I got them, I listened to like a small portion and then stored them, you know, fast forward to, you know, like two years ago, three years ago, I think is when I finally decided to try to do something with the tapes. And, you know, I tried to work out a couple of deals with Netflix and A&E to license the tapes and couldn't work that out. And I had been kind of contemplating doing a podcast because, you know, like most of us, you know, I listened to Serial and I realized that it was kind of like my jam, you know, I loved it right away. I loved, I've always been like that guy who loved like radio shows. Like I'm still, I'm still that guy who listens to like AM radio, <laughs> you know, when I'm driving in my car, I'm just like a, I'm a, like an audio file type guy. Like I just, I learn more listening than I do visually, you know, it, it really kind of struck me as something that I really enjoyed. So that like seed was kind of planted, you know, I messed around with the idea of doing it, you know, in the meantime, I'm like practicing for at that point, 18 years, you know, doing criminal defense work and I was getting burnt, you know, I was, it's, it's a brutal profession. I've really spent quite a bit of time in the podcast trying to illuminate people as to what that job is really like, um, because I think that it's grossly misunderstood an incredibly important function constitutionally speaking for like everyday people you know that they don't realize that what function criminal defense attorneys actually you know present in terms of kind of how society operates on a day-to-day basis it's like you know they're like oh i gotta you know it's like that whole technicality thing like is probably my biggest pet peeve you know when i hear people say oh you got off on a technicality i'm like no no (laughs) 
got off because the cops violated the constitution. That's why I got off. So if you want to blame somebody, blame the cops for not following the, the rules. You know, I mean, that that's, if criminal defense attorneys don't exist, and this is simply as I can put it, the cops can do whatever the fuck they want to do. It's that simple because there's no one there to monitor what they're doing. There's no, there's no recourse to them planting evidence, to them coercing confessions, to them beating people until they confess, to them making warrantless searches of your house, of your, your person, of your automobile. I mean, if defense attorneys aren't there to file motions and say, okay, I understand this guy is alleged to have committed a crime, but, but here's the problem. The cops did this, this, and this in violation of the constitutional rights. To, to get him under arrest, you know? So it's like, if that doesn't exist, we're then in a totalitarian, kicking the door in, searching your house whenever the fuck they want to type state. So that's really kind of the function of defense attorneys. It's like people just really don't get that. They, you know, watch what they see on Law & Order, which is like the fakest shit I've ever seen. I can't even watch it. It's like, it's so funny. My wife loves it. She loves all that, all, like all those crime shows. I'm like, why? I'm like, how are you watching this shit? It's like completely, completely fake. <laughs> like, no part of what they're showing on those shows is like anything like what the practice of law is like. Like, you know, nothing goes to trial in two weeks. You know, nothing's clean like that. You can't scream and yell in court like that. You can't like just say whatever the fuck you want. You know, it's like everything about it's just not genuine. So, but the stories that they're using are come from real life stories at times. Yeah, like like Law and Order did, they did one on Garcia. Like it was like before the Brumbeck killings and like after the Hunters, it was like when the Hunter killings took place and there was an episode on it. And I think there was a dateline as well when it was cold, you know. So, um, so yeah, that was kind of it. I, I'm out in Philly. I moved back. You know, Allison ends up moving back here. We get married. We start our practice here. We're 10 years in. And then I, I get a call and like... 2.30 in the morning and like I never checked because like at that point we were doing like a VOP like where our voicemail it was over internet so I would get an email like if we got a call and the call wasn't answered an email would come in and like for whatever reason I went into our like computer room which I never did ever like in the 10 years that we lived in that house prior to like a no other day had I ever gone to that computer and like, it just so happened that I just had missed a call like five minutes earlier, you know, it was from Anthony Garcia's brother. So who was living out in California, I call him back and Fernando answers and I'm like, Hey man, uh, you know, and I knew it was two o'clock my time. And I think Allison and I had like a huge argument <laughs> like that <laughs> night. So she was like up in bed, like pissed at me. And I was like, you know, I'm sure I'd something up and did something wrong. So she was super pissed at me and, so I ended up, I call him back, realizing it's probably midnight, and and he sounded like he wanted to talk to an attorney no matter what time they called back. You know what I mean? So it wasn't like... He was going through, like, the yellow pages, sort of. Like, yeah, I mean, I think he found us... Area attorneys. Yeah, I mean, I, I think what he ended I think he found us online. I never asked him. It's it's funny. People always ask me. I'm like, you know, how do, how do they find you? And I'm like, I'm assuming online. It had to have been, you know. Yeah, I was, I was like under the impression he was kind of just making cold calls and. Seeing no, I think he said like he told me I like we were the first ones who called uh, that that he had called. That's why you know because like in a, in a case like that, that's why I wanted to call right away. You know, like when you get so I, I call him and he's like, um, so what's going on? And he's like, well. 
you know, my brother just got picked up in Jackson County, which is in Southern Illinois, about five hours from where I live. And he's like, it sounds like they got, you know, they pulled him over for DUI. And I'm like, oh, oh, dude. Yeah. I'm like, no, I'm like, you got to like, you're going to want to find a, an attorney down in Jackson County. I, like, I'm, I don't drive five hours for a DUI. It's just like, he's like, well, you know, it sounds like they pulled him over for DUI, but they're talking something about murder. And I'm like, oh, okay. I'm like, so like, what do you know? And he's like, I, I don't know much. It's like my brother just called, just informed me they've been arrested. He's not sure why he said that they said something about murder. Cause remember, I mean, he's getting picked up at that point out of state, out of the jurisdiction where, so basically what happened is a joint venture with Illinois state police, the feds, I think there were a couple of Omaha cops. It was a concerted effort and, you know, they were fully planning on arresting him. Like they were tailing him um, for a couple of days. No, he was not. No, he he was actually on his way down to Louisiana um, to go Uh to New Orleans. (laughs) Yeah. So he he was on his way to do. (laughs) Oh, really? We'll get to that. So uh, yeah, he gets picked up and um, so they take him down there. So, Fernando's like, look, would you be willing to drive down there? So I went up, woke Allison up. I'm like, I, you know, I think we just picked up a murder case. And she's like, what? And I'm like, yeah. I'm like, so um, let's get ready. Let's find somebody to watch the kids and we're going to drive down there. I, I told her it's like five hours. She's like, okay. That was one way, good, a good way to end the whatever argument it was like that. We didn't even discuss okay. it anymore. <laughs> you know, that, that took a back there seat. So, go. yeah, right. So we, we jump in the car. At point that this was out of Omaha or you? No, I hadn't. We had zero clue. And we didn't know that there was allegations of four people being slain. So, like, we just thought it was a single case. You know what I mean? It's like we had zero information. We had as little information as Anthony gave Fernando. So, it, which wasn't much, you know, he's like on a, on a jail phone calling his brother, his brother's trying to find a lawyer, you know what I mean? So it was super limited information. So mm-hmm. it's not till we get down there and they hand us indictments and at first, and then they take them back. They like, they let us like peruse them, but like didn't hand the, you know, the paper indictments to us on like what, what he's being charged with. So, you know, and, and at that point they're asking, you know, are you agreeing to extradition? We're like, well, we don't even know what the fuck he's been charged with here, man. You know, can we like, can we see what you're charging him with? And can we talk to him before we're not, we're not making any decisions until we know what's going on. So we learned in pretty short order that DUI was definitely uh, the reason they pulled him over on its face, but certainly not where he was arrested for. So it turns out that um, at that point he was alleged to have killed four people over a five year period and Alice and I were like, holy shit. It, at that point, it was weird because, like, technically we entered our appearance. And, and that's something that, like, the people might not understand in terms of, like, kind of how the practice of law works is, like, in a criminal case, like, you've got to enter your appearance before, which means you're of record in the case. And it's, like, you can't just, like, it's it's not... I enter my appearance. Oh, I don't want to do it anymore. I'm, I'm going to get it. No, it doesn't work like that. You enter your appearance, you're pretty much stuck in the case. And so for us, like getting down there, we hadn't spoken to the family other than to Fernando. You know, we hadn't talked about fees. 
you know, at that point, we're talking about trying a case in a, in a state that we're not licensed in, which means that we would have to get admitted what they call pro hoc vice, which is you're admitted for a limited purpose, you know, typically for one case, you know, it's kind of like you're, you're given a guest pass to come and try a case and every state has different rules. Um, Omaha and Nebraska's rules were that you had to have a local council, um, that would basically sponsor you, you know, because there's differences in state law, you know, federal law is federal law. It's the same everywhere. That's why, you know, you can practice federal law in any state, you know, you have to get, you have to get into the trial bar of that state, but it's different than this, the, you know, the state bar because of the, the differences in statutes, you know, it's just, it's different in every state. Every state has many, many different statutes and, you know, even statutes that for crimes that sound like they're the same on it, on its face, you know, they're all worded differently. Everything's a little bit different in every state. So, you know, there were a lot of things going on in our minds, like in terms of, man, this is a lot, <laughs> you know, like, do we, do we want to sign up for this? And, you know, we hadn't talked about money. I knew from my father handling the Gacy case, how a case of this magnitude would be in terms of really taking over the practice. You know, there is no handling a case like this and then handling all your other shit. Like everything else dries up on the vine. You're not getting any new business in while you're on this case. You don't know how long it's going to last. Like, I mean, it, it lasted for years. You know, I mean, it, it was like it, it was a soul sucking business killing type case where you're there and it's, you're, you're like, man, I kind of knew it going in, but I didn't really know the extent of it until it really took place, you know? And, and like, I think our first call was probably to my dad, you know, and I'm like, Hey man, you know, I think we got this case. And I, I think I asked him right away, like if he wanted to try it with us, like some people take, take exception to this, but it's just how my dad always put it. He's like, he'd always said, that, you know, if, I, if we ever got a juicy murder, <laughs> so people are like, what juicy murder? What is he? Some kind of fucking scene. Oh, we, like, we get it. Yeah. Our true crime people get it, you know? So he's like, if you ever get a juicy murder case, I'll, I'll try it with you. And my father and I, I, you know, at that point I'd been in practice for like, you know, 14, 15 years and we had never tried a case together. So that was going to be our first and turns out to be only case that we ever tried together. So he, he jumped on board and, you know, which was huge for us because he had handled obviously Gacy, which was obviously very high profile. And that in terms of Omaha, Nebraska was like the biggest case in the history of that state. You know, I mean, it was like unbelievable, you know, and they hated us. <laughs> God, they hated us so much. So, uh, oh my God. And, you know, but it was one of those things where. And I'm sure we'll talk about it, but, you know, it was a death penalty case. And when you have a case like that and the state is trying to put somebody to death, any defense attorney that's worth a shit is going to make the state prove their case before they kill somebody. You know, this can't be like that. You know, Omaha and Douglas County was hoping they were going to get a local dude and they were just, you know, they were going to push this case right through. You know, instead they got like a battle to the fucking death for three years. We fought it hard because, you know, they're trying to take somebody's life. So if they're going to prove your case, you know, you're, you're going to prove it. You know, it's, you're going to, we're all going to be sure when we walk away that, you know, you proved your case. And 
unfortunately in that case, and, and I know you and I will have this discussion as well later, just not so sure, you know, and it's like, I'm going to wait. I'm going to quit talking. I'm going to let you start asking me some questions because otherwise I'll just ramble on forever. <laughs> okay. It's okay. Um, you've answered a lot of my very first introductory questions. So I'm going to skip ahead here. What were, when you first met Garcia, what were your impressions of him in the beginning? What did you think and about him? Your assessment of him when you first started to get to know him? So, I mean, the first time we met him down in Jackson County, he was just like, I, I don't know why I've been arrested. You know, he's like, I, I was asking the cops is like, you know, was this, you know, for my credit card, you know, something going on with that and kind of playing that thing. And, you know, we're like, all right, you know, well, and so we discussed the extradition issue and he's like, you know, I'm like, look, ultimately they're going to end up getting it. Like we can waste a bunch of time down here. You can sit in this shitty jail in Jackson County, or we can just agree to the extradition and waive it and allow them to transport you back to Omaha to get this thing started. You know, so we advised him exactly what he'd been charged with. And at that point in time, like down in Jackson County, you know, he's like, he's acting shocked. So then, you know, we, we get back. Did you believe him? Like in, I don't want this to sound like callous, but like any criminal defense attorney that like, it's not like movies and TV. Like you don't ask, like the first thing my father taught me about being a criminal defense attorney is you don't ask your client whether or not they did it. It's not that it's not like in movies and TV. I'm your lawyer. You have to tell me the truth. No, you fucking do that ever because of two reasons. One, if they did do it and you come up with an alternate defense, you can't put that client on the stand to testify. You know, you can't suborn perjury. If I come up with an alternate theory of defense and they've already confessed to me, that's done. Like you have no opportunity to put that guy in the stand other than to confess. So that's the first reason. But the, the second more important reason or equally important reason is my morality as a human being. You know, I, I don't need to know that. You know, and it's it sounds weird, but like in terms of what we do as criminal defense attorneys, I don't want my conscience blocking what I'm supposed to be doing for my job. You know what I mean? And that, and that's like, because people are always like, how do you fucking sleep? How do you look at yourself? And well, it's easy. Cause like I do that. I do what any good criminal defense attorney does. I, I put a wall up and I focus on the constitution and I focus on, did the cops do their job right? And I focus on the evidence and I focus on, this is what they're saying. They, they think he did. And do they have the evidence to prove that? That's what I focus on, you know? So in terms of whether or not, like, you know, I think Allison and I both thought he was an unusual guy when we first met him, <laughs> you know, like he definitely, you know, I mean, he, he was a strange guy, but you know, I mean, then again, I've never, I've never met a, a like a forensic pathologist or anybody who was interested in getting in that, that wasn't a little weird. It's, it's okay, like well, a, let me it, ask you this. Yeah. The the book that I read it touched on some mental health issues that Garcia had struggled with during his residency. He had sought some medical treatment, some some treatment from mental health professionals. He might have gotten on some medication. You didn't bring it up at trial because that wasn't the way his defense was going to go. He was going to say that he didn't do it. But, right. I mean, if you and Allison at home just talking amongst yourselves, I mean, did you ever turn around and be like, okay, look. The, this guy, he kind of sounds like he did it, kind of sounds like he's a little bit crazy. Maybe we can do this, you know, insanity defense, perhaps. Did it ever cross your mind? 
Yeah, I mean, sure. Anytime you're evaluating um, a case, you've got to look at that, you know. But he denied it, you know. So always, so that was not an option for us. Because remember, like with the insanity defense, and like I make this abundantly clear to people, I really kind of spell it out in our podcast on the Gacy side of it that you know they went with the insanity defense there, which by operation of law, once you do that. You know, because it's not like you can just surprise the state with that and like, surprise, we're doing the, you know, no, it doesn't work like that. You have to give them tons of notice. You know, you got to file uh, with the clerk of court that your intent is to pursue the insanity defense so that the state has an opportunity to get their doctors to, you know, examine the same guy as your doctors are examining and, you know, so that they can rebut whatever testimony you're going to have your experts getting on their saying. So, you know, from that sense, like that wasn't really an option for us because Garcia was always denied it. Always, 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 always. He never, ever, ever said that he did it. You know, he always denied it. So, you know, like we knew kind of right then and there, it was going to have to be actual innocence was going to be our defense, you know, that he didn't do it. So from, from kind of that perspective, we knew immediately kind of the path we were going to be on, you know, he kind of made that clear to us. And, you know, so then the next consideration that we have as we kind of progress through the case, and there's so much, but like, in all honesty, and like the first time that you and I spoke, it's like, you've literally heard half of the case. Like you have no idea what the defense was. Like it's, and it's unbelievable. It's like, there, there's so many unbelievable things that went on in that case and there's so much evidence that like Todd Cooper and which was probably your source material in terms of learning about the case just didn't report. Like if you were to read, like, and I can't imagine how many <laughs> pages the transcript and I'm, I'm ordering it because we're doing our second season on the Garcia case. So I can actually get the defense side of it out because it's fascinating. The whole case was unbelievable, but I mean, it was insane. Like everything. And I'm talking about like a railroad job where everything that they could do, they did, you know, in order to get him convicted. And it, it was, it was something, you know, and in like a year in, we started challenging our own client's competency because he was being kept in solitary 23 hours a day. So he, whatever mental illnesses he had, and he had definitely suffered from depression. You know, they had some uh, medical records because we got all his medical records. We asked his family, like, you know, what the fuck's going on with them? You know, is this like something that is plausible? I mean, that this is, this is him. Like, could he have like, cause his mother, his family is like the sweetest, most down to earth people you'll ever meet is like mother was a, you know, like an RN. Um, and, and Anthony's and like the post office. Exactly. For his entire, you know, and retired there is, is siblings. Fernando's like the nicest guy you'll ever meet. Yeah. I mean, just completely normal family that lived in Southern California, Anthony didn't exhibit any weird shit when he was a kid. He wasn't, you know, sticking animal heads on sticks. He wasn't doing any of that kind of shit. And there were no signs. He was completely normal. He had girlfriends. He played sports. He was just a normal kid. You know, he didn't like have kind of those telltale signs that most of these guys that do these types of horrible things have, you know, so. Um, what the book insinuated was that Anthony Garcia was slow that his reading level was at about a fifth grade level. And for his entire, all the time through college and medical school, he scraped by. That he he kept 
taking tests and failing and kept taking them and taking them until he finally passed. And he kind of eked his way into medical school. And that's what caused him to have difficulties getting through his residencies. And every time he met with some sort of professional failure, that's what kind of sent him on this path of seeking revenge against the people who had wronged him. That was the idea. Yeah, no, trust me, I'm, I'm well aware of what their concept was. So, yeah, it's not really accurate. Um, okay. I mean, he wasn't a straight-A student, but he certainly didn't have a fifth-grade reading level. Um, <clears throat> you don't get through med school. I don't care where you go with a fifth-grade reading level. It just it doesn't work like that. You know, he had, I, like, the bigger issue for us was that, like, Anthony Garcia wasn't one of those kids, like, when he was nine years old, decided, I want to be a doctor. You know what I mean? That wasn't, that wasn't his thing. You know, he came from, you know, really a blue collar family. You know, his father was a hardworking guy. His mother was a hardworking gal. Anthony got uh, accepted into medical school, you know, cause you still have to take, um, what is it? The MCAT, you know, I mean, you, you've got to achieve certain, if you can't read, you can't, you're not going to score well enough on the MCAT to get into, is that, is the MCAT for medical school or is that business? Many... That is medical college admissions test. Right. So, you know, I mean, he, he did well enough on that, you know, in order to get accepted into to, to med school. And, you know, I think he did okay. You know, I think he, he did well enough to get residencies. You know, I mean, if you're a total turd in med school, you know, you're, you're not going to even get a residency, you know. So he, he did okay. Um, certainly wasn't a straight A student. You know, but kind of my bigger point was like before he had taken the MCAT, I think he had taken the LSAT. Like he just, he didn't know what he wanted to do. You know what I mean? He, like this wasn't a guy like that. It flies in the face of the state's theory. Like this, this wasn't some guy whose lifelong dream was to be a doctor and that, you know, whose entire lifelong dream was foiled by, you know, him getting terminated in his residency at Creighton. You know, this was a guy who basically, did not do well on the LSAT, didn't get accepted into law schools because he didn't do well enough on the LSAT, and then kind of as a fallback took the MCAT. And so when he did that and he did well enough on that to get accepted, goes to med school, graduates, and then, you know, his first residency was actually um, not Creighton. You know, there was a, there was a school uh, that he had gone to or he was trying to get into like that, that didn't go well. So like Creighton was like the first one that he ended up like going and starting the residency. And the like this one was in New York. Correct. Yeah. So he ends up in Creighton, you know, and, and the things that like, and in, in I've obviously read every single thing that they had in terms of all of his records. And like, it, it wasn't a student thing that was his issue. It was, he had a, a, an inability to work well with others is really more what his issue was. And he, he, you know, there was some sloppiness. Yeah. Like it, his biggest problem is he just didn't really give a fuck, you know, like it was like, that's kind of what I'm trying to drive home about him. Like he, he wasn't that guy. Like most people that go to medical school, have that huge ego that are, you know, like, oh, I'm a doctor. You know, it's like you always hear about that, you know, God complex that doctors have. This, that, that wasn't really him, you know. It's like his parents were, like, beaming with pride because he was basically the first kid out of all their kids to, you know, get an advanced degree. So they were so thrilled, you know, so proud of him. 
you know, so he had that, that kind of aspect to it going on, but he just didn't love the concept of being a doctor. Like he didn't, he didn't necessarily, like he wasn't driven per se to be a, a forensic pathologist. Like that wasn't well, I think that that's what was going on in New York. He was with the family practice first and right. it wasn't going well for him. And I think that's why he decided to switch to pathology because he really didn't have to deal with he was living people. With, yeah, he was <laughs> right. People. <laughs> right. He didn't have to have like bedside manner per se. So he gets there and he did okay. Like I, I've got all of his, like I still have his entire file. So I've read all of his evaluations and you know, he was like average. He was just like kind of a, like a middle of the road type dude. You know, his bigger problem was that he was sloppy, you know, like there's the, you know, kind of the example where on one of the autopsies, he left the corpse like face down. So like the face. Yeah, it was terrible because all the, you know, all the blood drains down, you know, it just, that's how the physiology of it works. All the blood drains down. So they're like, what the? fuck, you can't do that, man. You know that, you know, and he was like, oh, well, sorry. He didn't take the criticism all that well either. No, and yeah, like he, I think he had beef with, really, Boutro was was the main one that he had beef with, you know, and, and that seemed to be like a, a limited circumstance. It wasn't like an ongoing feud that went on for like years. It was like, I think for him, like, cause he, he was Hispanic, um, and I believe that his mom was Filipino. I, I want to say that she was Filipino. So he was a minority, you know, and, and he was not afraid to play that card. If he felt that he was being wronged, you know, he often felt that it was because he was a minority and he would call people on that shit. And were, were Boutra and him just kind of butted heads. Like he felt like, you know, she was overly tough on him in terms of like some of her written evaluations and, you know, and, and he had an outburst with her. I think Hunter called him into his office, Bill Hunter. And he's like, look, she's your fucking boss. You know, you, you can't, you can't talk like that. It's not professional. Number one. And number two, she's your boss. You can't do that. And he was like, well, fuck that. I'm not, I'm not apologizing to her. She treats me like shit, blah, 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 blah. So, you know, it was kind of like, that was like the impetus, like that happened before the crank phone call <laughs> to me. That was like the weirdest thing about him. Like that, that he like thought, you know, then again, I think at that point he's probably like 23, 24. So, I mean, clearly not very mature in terms of, you know, his thinking, but like he, he coerced some other kid and, uh, you know, or some other guy that was in the residency program. They, there's, there's two of them that, that placed this phone call to a guy who was taking his medical career very seriously. He was taking, I think his series five exam mm -hmm. and, you know, Garcia gets it into his brain and, and like, he had no beef with this guy. You know what I mean? Like this guy that he ends up calling this guy's wife and he says, Hey, you know, we're calling from Crate. We just want to let you know that your husband's vacation time was not approved. He's got to leave the test immediately and come back to the hospital, you know? So they obviously figure out in very short order who it was. You know, it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out it was him and this other guy. And like from that point forward, you know, Hunter calls him in the office. He's like, he's like what, you know, what, what do I do with you? You know, it's like you, you have this thing with Boutra. You know, I, I don't know what to do with you with this thing. It's like the most unprofessional thing I've ever heard of anybody doing ever. And, you know, he's like, I, so he didn't get fired. <laughs> I need to be abundantly clear about that. He, he didn't get fired. Basically, Hunter says, look, it's not working at this program. 
So what I like, I've got a friend at um, UIC in Chicago. So I got a friend over there. I want to make a couple calls. I want to see if you can get, you know, if I'm going to see if I can get you into that program. And Garcia says, okay, you know, that sounds great. And, you know, so he does it. And, you know, Hunter writes this letter. He makes the phone call. People didn't put it together that, or or Hunter didn't put it together that, that, that Garcia had any grudge against him because he had actually helped him when things were going south at Crichton. Right. Yeah. So like when, when I don't ever really believe that he did have a grudge against Hunter, <laughs> you know, that's like, I, like that's what that, that, that's what the States, you got to realize that when the state comes up with a theory, it, it's the story, you know, that becomes their narrative. And then everything that they find, they have to make it fit that narrative. Okay. You know what I mean? So it's like, and that was, you know, so the Hunter killings take place in in 2008, that case goes cold, you know, and they, they really did their, their investigation was incredibly thorough. You know, I mean, the, the one connection that they just didn't make for whatever reason is they didn't, they didn't look at the dad, you know what I mean? Meaning they didn't look at Bill Hunter. They just assumed, you know, they didn't know what to think, you know, they, they didn't know. I mean, they just thought it was random. And they they just didn't see that connection with the university. That wasn't something that really kind of like was on their radar in terms of like kind of trying to figure out well, what the fuck, but they did. So it's like, I, I know that Cooper talks about how they didn't, but they really did. And like, there's some stuff I got to say for my podcast, but I yeah. There, but that. I yeah. read a book that definitely gave me a slant on this whole story and yeah. I tried to present it as, as, what it was but because i honestly i i kind of felt like he was guilty and maybe you aren't gonna say no i I mean look anybody who reads that book is gonna think he's guilty you know i mean if you read one side of any story you're gonna think whatever that story just told you i mean like podcast then the next yeah right fortunately they have you know that's why there's both sides get to to have their their say you know so and, and like that's the great thing for us from our podcast perspective. Like people are going to be hearing shit for the very first time, you know, cause we missed cameras in that courtroom by literally a week. Like as soon as like, like I think of the week after our trial was over, they then allowed cameras in the courtroom. Cause that case would have been unbelievable. Like televised. It was like, from what it, I read, it was, uh, I read some of the closing arguments and when you were presenting your, you were wrapping it up and uh-huh. you, they were just piling on the objections and there's a lot of contention between yourself and the prosecutor. Oh yeah. Well, you know, I went on for four hours. Like they, they couldn't really stop. Like I didn't give a shit about their objections. You know, it's like, I, I, I literally, my closing, I think was four hours long. So, but it was a, a case that spanned five years, you know, there was a huge amount of information to go through. And, you know, their case was entirely circumstantial. I don't know how many death penalty cases. When I've got, oh yeah, you're right. This is a death penalty case, but the times that I've been to jury duty, they make it abundantly clear that circumstantial evidence is just as legitimate as. That's not though. It's not. I mean, that's, it's, it's just not. They tell you when you're a juror. Well, no, what they tell you when you're a juror is that you have to give it the same weight as direct evidence. 
You know what I mean? So that that's a that's a different thing. Um, it's definitely not as strong. I mean, you know, there, there's sometimes major issues with eyewitnesses because direct evidence is basically like, you know, if you walked out of your apartment and you saw uh, or your house and you, you know, you saw your neighbor shoot his wife in the head, um, that's direct evidence, you know, and there's not going to be any circumstantial evidence that's going to be stronger than that. What so about all those papers they found soaking in his sink, uh, all that stuff. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was some weird shit, but you know what? I mean, to be honest with you, if I came to your house and started rooting around in all your shit, <laughs> you know, I'd probably find some weird shit. You know what I mean? It's like okay, never mind. <laughs> that kind of, you know, they needed those kind of things to kind of pile on. You know, there's no part of me that's saying that like Anthony Garcia is like the most, you know, most normal, well-adjusted human being I've ever met. But then again, you know, I've been doing this a long time. People are fucking weird. You know, I mean, that that's just like all of us are a little weird in our own separate ways. We, we really are. And just think about if people like dug into your life <laughs> in the way that they dug into it and, they, and they're parsing everything. Because again, they're trying to fit pieces of a puzzle into a narrative that they have to have in order to, you know, get the conviction. So that bag of weirdness that they found was perfect, you know, for them to show, well, look at these crazy ramblings. You know, they were trying to make it like a manifesto, but it was not that. Most of it was just junk, like bills and other shit. There were like two pieces of paper, you know, that where there was like some ramblings where it's like one of them is kind of like a list, where it's like literally a, a grocery list. And then like, he's got like by gloves, <laughs> you know, like where he's got some like kind of nefarious sounding shit on there. And, you know, but yeah. that's just not enough to put somebody to death. It's just not. It's the you know? whole picture, though. You put it all together. And yeah, but wait till you wait to hear the other side of it. Oh. Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, you would be like the I would kick your ass off a jury so quick because <laughs> like, you know, you, you, you hear one side and you're like, I'm sold, you know, but that was like that was like the challenge, you know, like for us going into the case, everyone was you. You know, because for three years, that guy, Todd Cooper, who wrote, who was the crime beat writer for the Omaha World Herald, wrote an article four times a week about Anthony Garcia. He had him just convicted in the press. It was done. You know what I mean? So imagine the challenge for a criminal defense attorney to, because like all we ask for, and it's not just, it's both sides. We really just want an unbiased jury. You know, so like, that's why we fought so hard to get it out of that fucking county. You know, there's, there's no way that case should have like, I don't know what's going on with Anthony Garcia's appeals, but, um, he had four slam dunk appeals that he would have won, but he was insane by the time we went to trial. They had him, I'm telling you, and like, I want you to try to imagine 23 hours a day in a cell uh, for three years. He literally got out one hour a day to like walk around a little bit and take a shower. Had no human contact other than with us. Like by the third, I mean, like when you see the pictures, when everyone posts that picture of him, like looking like Ted Kaczynski with the beard and like, yeah, yeah. he was out of his fucking mind. On top of that, they were pumping tranquilizers into this guy and they were fucking with him. Like if, if people don't know that when somebody who's reviled in jail is fucked with by the staff and by the, the, you know, the guards in there, believe me, it happens all the time. 
and it happened with him. They, they tortured that guy. We challenged our own client's competency three times. He couldn't assist us. Like towards the end, he just, he could not help us. Like it should never have gone to trial. Like they didn't allow us to, like it, it wouldn't have mattered because, you know, when you start actually hearing all the evidence, there's no way you can ignore it. We had the preeminent forensic pathologist in the world was was going to testify for us as to the Brumbeck case. They just ignored science. Like Brumbeck could not, like he could not have been killed in their timeline on Sunday afternoon on Mother's Day and still been in rigor mortis when they found him on Tuesday, which he was. Science does not allow for that. Does not allow for it. That's that's not that's not an opinion. That's a fact. That's a scientific fact. Unless that that body is frozen or kept, you know, in, in, uh, you know, sub freezing temperatures. That's the only way that body will remain in rigor mortis. And Roger, Roger Brumbeck on Tuesday morning, when he was discovered by, and the, the ME didn't get out there until like almost six o'clock at night. So we're talking like 78 hours. Like, and when we get off, why don't you Google how long rigor mortis lasts? So, you know, we had, we had science behind us. We had the fact that, uh, the next door neighbor of the Brumbacks was uh, Omaha police who was home that day. And, you know, with the Brumbacks, four shots were fired from outside of the house into the house because Roger Brumbeck was shot in his foyer. The offender was standing outside shooting in on mother's day of probably the first nice day of the spring. Most people are probably outside barbecuing at four o'clock in the afternoon on mother's day. No one heard a gunshot. It's implausible. It does it. The cop who lived right next door, who's like, well, you know, my wife, her oxygen tank was running. And I said, okay, like on cross-examination, I said, okay, your, your wife's oxygen tank was running. Well, let me ask you this officer. If a car backfired outside of your front door and your wife's oxygen tank was running, would you hear it? He says, well, yeah, <laughs> you know, so in a nine millimeter gunshot, it's going to be as loud, if not louder than uh, a backfire vehicle and four of them. And he heard nothing. No one heard anything. No one. So no one saw anything. And we're talking like, this is like, and I walked that neighborhood 50 times, you know, like I stood like halfway down the block and I had my private investigator standing on Roger Brumbeck's porch because that street was like a T. Um, you know, there was a street that ran down the middle with houses on both sides. And at the end of the street, you know, you had a row of houses up, you know, kind of at the end, at the, at the top of the T. And Roger's was dead in the middle, the Brumbeck house. So I was literally a block down and I'm just, I'm clapping my hands because what I wanted to do was buy blanks and like fire the blanks to see how loud it would be in that neighborhood. So I was just standing, like I said, about a block in the middle, clapping my hands, like as loud as I could. And I'm like, Steve, can you, and my, my PI was former law enforcement. You know, he was a 30 year, he was the sheriff of the town that he was uh, law enforcement. So, I mean, the guy, you know, was legit. I'm like, can you hear it? He's like, of course I can hear it. <laughs> you know what I mean? He's like, I can hear you talking, you know? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. Cause this is like a bedroom neighborhood. So it's like, you've got these, these facts out there that just, you know, when you kind of look at it in two separate cases, you know, like the MOs are different. Like killing a boy is a whole fucking different mindset than killing like a per, like a, an adult. 
like killing a child is just different, you know, and, and we hired criminologists and, you know, I mean, we put on a real case, you know, cause it, it's not the same, you know, and, and if it was Anthony Garcia, he would have known that uh, Bill Hunter was still at work. You know what I mean? It's like he, he would have known that he was at work because he went to school there. And, and that happened to be um, the day where everybody finds out uh, what residency program they got selected to. So that was like that, that particular day that that uh, homicide took place. was it, you know, and if that's Anthony Garcia, he would have known that. And he would have known that there's no way that Hunter is going to be home at three 30 in the afternoon, which means that he had to go there. Number one, it means that he knew that he had a kid and that he was going there with that in mind, that his theory of revenge was going to be to do the worst thing that he could possibly do to anybody, which is kill his child. Right. So that that's just a completely different MO, you know, then, then speaking of your private eye, Mm -hmm. we talk about Cecilia Hoffman next. Totally. Okay, so there was some pretty flimsy circumstantial evidence in the 2008 murders, which is the one you're talking about with the hunter's son, right. Tom, Tom being killed, and the housekeeper. Right. The prosecution produced this bombshell witness, so-called bombshell witness, in Cecilia. Um, Garcia frequented these gentlemen's clubs, and she was an exotic dancer there who was apparently one of his favorites, and she testified um, that he admitted to killing a young boy and an old woman. Um, in court, you wanted to discredit her, but the book insinuated that you sent your private investigator over to her home to try to somehow possibly intimidate her into not testifying. I was I I found that kind of hard to believe. Yeah, well, it's I don't think that's not how it happened. <laughs> that's what the book had said, yeah. and. Um, I just didn't think that that was something that you would do. No, um, but what was movie. that all about? Like, so, I, yeah, we end up getting that, and they found her later. So, you know, kind of the interesting thing about the Garcia case is that they were continuing, like, in retrospect, which I wish, you know, I could look into the future, I, I would have done a speedy trial demand on him because they had no fucking evidence against him other than him being present in the state on the date of the, the Brumbeck killings. That was it. They had no DNA evidence. And we're talking about stabbing murders, which is almost impossible to not leave DNA. Like Mary Brumbeck had 29 defensive wounds in her hands alone. She fought for her life, you know, which means that her arms are flailing. She's screaming bloody murder. Like this isn't like a movie, you know, this is like real life, like a knife fight in real life is horrific as you can get most of the time. In my experience, the assailant usually when he's either trying to hold an arm and he's trying to stab, you know, he's going to clip himself. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's just one of those things that happens because, you know, you're trying to thrash a blade and imagine a woman fighting for her life. Like this wasn't some placid woman who had been bound. You know what I mean? This is a woman who was fighting. Well, and in her 60s. It doesn't matter. Are you kidding me? Like I'm 51. I, I would put up one hell of a fight. You know, it's like your adrenaline's going, you know, I mean, 29, 29 wounds on your hand tells you all you need to know. You know, this wasn't a woman who just like kind of said, okay, you know, I mean, she, she was fighting. She was trying to block his knife 
his his parries with the knife with her hands and was to the tune of 29 times. You know, I mean, she was fighting. But the reality of that is, is like, you just have to try to think logically about it. The odds of the perpetrator not clipping himself, like one of his hands or his wrist or anything with like that kind of movement is, is like slim to leave no DNA whatsoever. No DNA, not, not at either scene. It was something that was really, really tough to, to stomach from the defense side of it. It was like, you know, because you think about the Hunter one. They see somebody like there were four or five witnesses that saw somebody unusual walking in the neighborhood, but none of them said that he was covered head to toe. Like, how, how do you not leave any kind of DNA? You know, how are you not covered in blood when you're slitting people's jugulars? You, you know what I mean? Because like the blood spatter is like enormous amounts of blood are lost when you're talking about that kind of a wound. You know, there, there's blood everywhere. You know, so it's like there's there just so many things that just didn't add up from that end of it. But so let me jump back to Cecilia Hoffman, because like that's what I say. I, I start getting into rabbit holes in this case because it was so consuming for us. So but so what happens with Cecilia is that as the, the investigation goes on while he's in custody, like they came up with huge amounts of evidence after he had been arrested, which. I discuss in my podcast, that's not unusual. The cops always continue investigating after arrest because it's a lower threshold to get somebody under arrest. It's probable cause, you know, in order to convict them, you need to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. So they're always going to try to gather more and more evidence, you know, which they did. So they end up going to these strip clubs. There were two or three strip clubs in Indiana that he frequented like all the time. He's a single guy, you know, he had some money. So he went there all the time. It was like, he, he was like, when he walked into the strip club, it was like, you know, the cheesy strip club, like DJ guy would be like, Dr. Tony's, in the, you know, I mean, like literally, like I'm not exaggerating. It was like, Dr. Tony's in the house, you know, they'd stop me, you know? And so, and, and the girls, they're trying to make a living, you know what I mean? So, and they, they knew that he's, he's a mark, you know, in terms of that's kind of how that trade works in terms of, you know, the girls know, when they get a guy that like likes them and who is a frequent customer, you know, the girls kind of say, that's my guy. You know what I mean? Like that's, he's my customer. Don't, don't poach on my shit, you know? And that's just kind of the reality of it. So the story comes out and we get this report. And so Allison, my wife, who, you know, is a mother of four mother of all my kids, like calls Cecilia to talk to her. So basically what I do first is I go onto social media. I, try to messenger. I'm like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm the defense attorney for Anthony Garcia. We wanted to reach out to you to, to, you know, to see if you talk to us because we've read your statement and we want to be, and we have every right to do that. Like defense attorneys are allowed to talk to any witnesses they want to. This isn't like, you know, we're not in crazy world here. You know, like basically the only person that can't be talked to is either the, the primary victim if they're alive and you know, the defendant, like without the attorney being present, like those two are off limits. Every other witness is, of course. But, you know, the problem with that from the defense side is the state, when they've contacted them, they kind of become state witnesses. So if they're contacted by anybody, they're calling the state's attorney saying, oh, well, the defense attorneys are calling me. Should I talk to them? And they can't tell them, no, you can't talk to them. But what they tell them is like, you don't have to talk to them. If you don't want to talk to him, you don't have to talk to him. You just tell him you don't want to talk to him. You know what I mean? So 
that's why we reached out to her first. And I kind of like ferreted her out, you know, and I'm like, cause I wanted her to call. So we ended up getting her on the phone and then Allison and her proceed to have like an hour and a half conversation. And, you know, this is like four years after she alleges And remember she came up with the story after Garcia was arrested. Okay. And after it was on the news and she had never told anybody ever that he had told her that. <laughs> so, you know, that sends up a red flag for me immediately. I'm like, Oh my God, this, this chick's like, you know, so I was ask you that if you think that she was lying, what would I completely think she was lying. Like, so well, that that's where this conversation goes. So, mm-hmm. Allison is like, and I was there. It was in our, like, it was in the evening. Allison was pacing around like she always does when she's on a phone conversation. And I'm like kind of sitting there and she's having this conversation with Cecilia. And Cecilia is making it abundantly clear that she, at that point, you know, she doesn't want to dredge up her past. Like at that point, she was like working as assistant manager at Menards. She doesn't want to go fucking testify that, you know, she was a stripper, (laughs) you know, that she was a meth head, you know, that she had drug problems and alcohol problems because, you know, she's like, and she, so what she proceeds to tell us in that conversation with Allison, it was like, it was mom to mom because she had a kid. Allison's like, I wouldn't want to testify if I were you either. I'd want to, you know, get the fuck out of town. Like, you know, like Allison was just talking to her like a normal person, not like grilling her. Cause she's like, I, you know, I don't want to do this. Like, I don't want to expose my life to the world. You know, like I have no desire in that. I'm just trying to live my life and I don't need to be dredging up my shitty past and you know, this and that. So she recants, she says that, you know, I wouldn't trust anything that I said back then, you know, and I wouldn't trust anything that I heard or said that somebody's, you know, cause I was, I was using math daily. You know, I was drinking daily. It was a super fucking dark time in my life. You know, so Allison told her, she's like, well, we need an affidavit from you. You know, we need, you know, in the event, because we want to get an affidavit. And the reason we get affidavits is because people change their minds. You know, she'll say one thing to us and then, you know, she'll get Don Klein or Brenda Beadle, the state's attorneys from uh, Douglas County, and they get them on the phone and they'll, they'll talk her back into testifying. You know, so it's important for us to get it memorialized in writing, like as soon as she says it. So that's when we sent Steve down and Steve gave her a business card the minute he stood in and Steve is like the biggest, sweetest teddy bear in the world. The guy's like six, four, he's got like, but he's like a completely gentle giant. And he's like, fortunately for us, Steve recorded the entire thing. So, because they just made up all kinds of bullshit. Like, you know, they like the thing that you said that Allison was trying to intimidate a witness and that we sent Steve down there to intimidate her. So like Steve could not have been more polite, more professional, more cordial with her. And it wasn't until like, she just assumed like Steve handed her his business card when he walked in the door, she just assumed that he was a cop because he looks like a cop. So then they sat at their kitchen table and like halfway through, she finally figures out that she's like, Oh, do you, do you work with the Matas? And he's like, yes. <laughs> he's like, I'm, I'm their private investigator. She's like, oh. And then so she gets weird. And then she runs out. And I think she calls Don Klein. And his email. And then he called her. 
yeah, yeah right so I don't, I don't know if i don't i don't know if like i never saw that email so i'm not sure that it actually took place but uh we know that he, he they spoke on the phone and you know he's like so she comes in and basically you know because steve's entire purpose was to get the affidavit done you know signed to get her statement and you know like i said we have every every right to to interview every single witness that's willing to talk to us you know so she ends up kind of like she cuts it short after the conversation with klein and steve but steve doesn't know you know so steve's like well she's like i i gotta go to work and he's like well okay he's like should i you know he's like i can prepare the affidavit and should i come meet you at menard she's like yeah 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 it so she blows him off. I think she ends up blowing him off at Menards too. And like, you know, he calls us. He's like, what, what should I do? I'm like, well, good man. I mean, you're just gonna have to come back. I mean, you're not going to stalk the chick. So he left. So then she ends up, Don Klein directs her to go to the Indiana state police where she goes and does this interview with them, which we had on tape, which thankfully like she lied about everything like in that interview and she was fucking drunk there too when she did that interview. And so it's like Klein then files a motion for sanctions against Allison alleging that she had uh, tried to intimidate the witness. And I was like, I was so beside myself. Like I was so fucking furious with Don Klein. I'm like, you know, like him and I were nose to nose, like on three or four occasions because he was attacking my wife you know, and it's a, it, like, it, it's hard, you know, it's hard for me to kind of separate when it comes to that point. I like, I, I said, look, I said, all professionalism aside, I'm like, if you keep attacking my wife, we're going to have a problem. I'm like, cause she's the, the like, because my wife is like literally the most ethical attorney I know. Like there's no part of her that would ever do anything that was untoward ever. Like she would never like, she's 4'11 and yeah, she's a pit bull but she would never ever do anything like that. Like she's trying to intimidate a witness. So he writes this motion up. And of course that motion fucking disappeared like a fart in the wind. And, you know, I, I was demanding that they retract it, that they withdraw the motion, that they make a statement in the press that everything that they said was a lie. Because as soon as we gave him Steve's tape, they knew they didn't know that Steve had required PI had recorded the entire interview, which was idiotic of course he would you know i mean <laughs> we need it i got kind of turned off at that some points in the book about it i i didn't like the way that allison was portrayed in the book they kind of described how you said they kind of she matches you pound for pound when it comes to your tenacity 100 um, percent. i felt like if not more if not more tenacious she's right. a badass but they kind of cast her in more of a negative light and and she ultimately got removed from the case. And it, to me, it felt like it was because they couldn't deal with the fact that she was a strong, assertive woman. Exactly. And, and she got taken off the case. The reasons why they explained it in the book was that I have a feeling you're going to say that's not how it went down. She said something to the media and they took exception to that and had her kicked off. Is that what happened? What yeah. Happened so, uh, yeah. So, I mean, that is what happened, but the rules of ethics, like that, those are the rules that kind of like are the guidelines for attorneys when you're practicing. So they are not like, neither side is supposed to be talking about the case of the press. All right. So we're talking about three years of Todd Cooper writing these articles 
three years of Don Klein, who was the county attorney, not like a assistant. He's the guy going on fireside chats, talking about how Anthony Garcia is guilty. We are allowed by law, by the, the rules of, of ethics to there, there's something called a safe Harbor where we're allowed to come out and try to even the playing field a little bit, you know, cause we had already lost our motion to move it because we, we, we had immediately the first motion I filed was, was a motion to get it out of that County. So he was never going to get a fair trial there. It was like the press was just all over him and convicting him in the press. It's like, it's not fair. You know, you can't, you can't, plant that seed that would be like you reading that book and then you sitting on the jury there would be no way i could convince you you know you would already have a preconceived moment like just think of it like put yourself pretend like you're a juror and pretend like you read that book and remember it's the same guy who was writing all the news articles so it was the same shit he was saying the exact same thing in the newspaper three years it was going on as we're leading into trial and everyone read the paper. It was like the, you know, it's like the biggest paper in Omaha. It's like the Tribune or the New York Times in New York or the Chicago Tribune or the Sun-Times in Chicago. It's, it's the paper. So trying to overcome that, that whole story is unbelievable because it, it, it goes to the DNA because we had a DNA expert. And the only DNA that they ever found, they claimed that they found on Butra's door handle, her back door handle. And it was an incredibly shitty sample. Like it was a one in 12 match. Like you want DNA to be like one in a billion, one in three billion. Like it can't be anyone else's DNA. The DNA that they found on Butra's door handle was like one in 12, meaning that one of the 12 jurors could not be excluded. That's how weak the DNA was on Butra's door handle, that it was not a match. So our DNA expert, who was an unbelievably brilliant guy, Carl Reich, uh, he was actually on the second season of uh, Making of a Murderer. He was um, he was hired by uh, Stephen Avery's appellate attorney, and uh, I mean the guy's unbelievable. Like he's just he's he's a genius, and he's able to break DNA out, uh, down for laymen in a way that that people that don't understand the science of it can understand it. You know. And he said unequivocally that it wasn't a match and it's all like peaks with alleles. And, you know, it was like, and just for <laughs> reference, this is the, the back door of what they claim was to be Garcia's intended victims where they were doctor. The doctor Buter was at, uh, worked at Crichton and wrote up the negative reviews that he tried her back door. Um, and it set off some kind of alarm, which, which, activated their phone app and when he he couldn't get in he moved on to the brumbacks and so they right. went back some days later and swabbed the door handle and found garcia's dna on it well they found they found some some dna, yeah, some DNA. <laughs> like, yeah like you know like a like a one in 12 i can't impress upon you how that's the the worst dna like it, it shouldn't even been admissible it's like, you know, like what I'm saying is you need a one in like to feel like it's unequivocally this person you want, like it's a one in three billion, like, like the population of the world or the population of the United States, that that's the kind of like, you want a one, like it can't be anybody else. A one in 12, again, it, it, like one, one person out of a 12 person jury could not be excluded. You, you know what I mean? It, it's like the weakest DNA that you can possibly get. 
and, and they knew that the state knew that. And they're like, you'll get to hear in my podcast. Cause I'm sure Todd didn't bring it up in his book that they had, and they knew how weak that DNA was. So they went and found this other company with this guy who had created a new algorithm to uh, analyze DNA. And, you know, when you're trying to introduce evidence of uh, scientific nature, they have to be able to, there, there's the, a case that, that took place like in the, like I think the mid eighties, it's called the Daubert case. And there's a Daubert test that has to be passed because what that's kind of the gateway to not allowing junk science in. And essentially what that allows both sides to do is to vet. There's a hearing that takes place before they decide whether or not the, the evidence is going to be admissible. And that particular, so this guy's algorithm comes back that it's like, like that number, it's like one in, you know, 2 billion that it's definitely Anthony Garcia. So we're like, okay, so we're going to have a Daubert hearing on it. We're going to get to, you know, we're going to get to cross-examine this guy. We're going to find out what his algorithm is so that we can give it to our DNA expert so that he can analyze it to see if it's legitimate or if it's complete and total bullshit. And this guy would refuse. He's like, I, I can't give you the algorithm. If I do that, then my company's not worth anything. It's got no value because then everybody will know what it is. So like there was no way for us to vet his information if it was legitimate. It's just a guy who's saying shit without any kind of real scientific proof that it worked, you know, or how it worked, you know, with our DNA expert. So Allison went to the media about. Yeah, right. Because our our, DNA that was found on Shirley Sherman um, on her uh, bandana. Well, it was, but the, the point of it was that the DNA that we found on Shirley's bandana, because there were only, there was one fingerprint and there was one sample of DNA. So, man, it's, there's just so much to this case. So six months, maybe nine months prior to the Hunter murders, there was, and remember that the knives were horrifically left, left in the necks of both victims, right? Mm-hmm. Completely, like just a completely uncommon MO. Like our criminologist was like, I've, I've handled, you know, 50, you know, 50,000 murder cases. And I've never seen that before. Like it's, it's like a, it's a distinct MO of the person who killed them. Like that's, that's what they do. So nine months prior to that, there was a woman named Joy Blanchard who had been murdered in her home and the knife had been left in her neck. And when we got our binders, um, there was no mention of Joy Blanchard anywhere. And, and we got 15 binders that were relating to the Brumback or to the, uh, the Hunter homicides. So Allison and Steve had figured out that that homicide had taken place. Thank God for Google <laughs> because they found out about this thing. So we filed, you know, motions demanding that we be able to see that file. And, and no one had been arrested on the Joy Blanchard killing either. That was a cold case as well. And the MO was identical to the Hunter murders. So there were, there were two guys that they had liked for that. And so we started digging into these two guys. And one of the two guys was the ex-boyfriend of Shirley Sherman's daughter who was in the meth trade. And he was a meth dealer and Shirley Sherman was keeping a fucking notebook on this guy. And he, she wanted this guy out of her daughter's life, like yeah. 
unequivocally. And um, so the DNA that they found on Shirley's bandana was stronger than the DNA that they found on Butra's doorknob. Still not a great, still not a great sample, but it was stronger than the, the DNA sample that they, so what's good for the goose is good for the gander. You know, that was, that was our approach. If you're going to use that shitty DNA to try to implicate our guy, we've got this DNA and our, our expert is saying that it's a stronger match than, you know, the Butra and Garcia DNA. So we think that this unequivocally shows he should be exonerated. Like that's what she said. So like she said, I, I think that our, we fully expect the state's going to exonerate our client as to the Hunter murders, because we've got a DNA sample that's stronger than the sample that they have for Anthony Garcia on Boutra's door handle. And, and everyone knew about this shit. You know what I mean? This wasn't like some kind of secret. It's like Todd Cooper was writing about all this shit because we argued it in court, in motions. You know what I mean? It wasn't like it was some kind of deep, dark secret. So the day that we, two days after we filed our notice of intent to name another suspect, okay, in the Joy Blanche or for the Hunter killers. And we were going to, we were implicating it was either uh, the Simmer kid who was the nephew of Joy Blanchard or uh, the other guy who was the boyfriend of the cleaning woman's daughter. We, we filed notice, which you have to, to file in court. So we're there arguing a dog sniff motion because they were trying to use um, they, they had brought a bloodhound to Anthony Garcia's, uh, neighborhood, like eight years after the fact. And they claimed that, and they, they had taken some of Thomas Hunter's, uh, uh, scent from evidence and they brought it with them down there. And they claimed that when they were driving on the street with the dog in the car, that the dog signaled that it, it, it had smelled Thomas Hunter like on the cement inside the vehicle eight years later. So we're in the middle of, of arguing this ridiculous fucking motion. Like it was so obscene. And then it turns out that we found a hundred year old case in Omaha that dog sniffs are not allowed into evidence ever. So the judge was super pissed at the state. He's like, you wasted all of our time. And he's like, Mr. Klein, you are the County attorney. You had to know this law existed. So like that day, like we win that motion, they exclude the dog sniff stuff. We're heading back to the airport in Omaha and like Allison, it's me, my dad and Allison and Allison is behind me. And she's like, Holy shit. She's like, they arrested him. And this is two days after we said that we were going to use Simmer as uh, a potential suspect and who we think committed the, the Hunter murders. So they, after eight years, they while we were in arguing that motion, they arrested this Charlie Simmer for the murder of Joy Blanchard, which effectively took him out of play for us. Right. Oh, like completely. Like, so it was, it was like on, like everything that they could do that was just sneaky and shitty and shady. They did. And there's just so much. It, it's like, it's never ending. It's like when, when, like, I'll be curious and, and you know what I want to do? Like after, 
season two is done, when you hear all of the evidence, not just the state's evidence, through the eyes of Todd Cooper, I'll be curious as to what you think. You know, anytime you're going to read one side of a story, and you know, and and, and, and he was an easy target because he's weird. You know what I mean? He was a he was like a strange guy. You know, so it was like he he was just. I don't know. It, it, you know, it was. I have read the defense attorney side of these high-profile yeah. cases. It matters. I mean, you got to hear both sides and then make your decision. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, I made a decision. I just told the story as as. Yeah, I mean, like you, you had the source material that the only shit out there that exists. You know, I mean, I, I'm certainly not. You know, I mean, there was no, there's nothing out there from our side of it. You know what I mean? And Todd certainly, you know, wasn't giving any defense side of it. You know, because it's like I shut him down. Like he hated us. Like I, we would never comment to him. Because I'm like, I said, you're fucking convicting my guy. I'm never going to talk to you. And um, and like, and on top of that, you're Klein's buddy. You know, you're the county attorney's guy. You know, he leaked shit to you, and then you write it. You know, it's like, screw you. You know what I mean? I like, I had there was no love lost, and and you know, and I made it abundantly clear to Todd many many times that I thought he was a scumbag. You know, I'm like, you're, you, you, this isn't what your job is. I mean, the, the, the press is supposed to be unbiased. You're supposed to be reporting, you know, and like this guy's like trying the case in the press. Like there was this like they put this like two page hand drawn case against Anthony Garcia in the middle of this paper that was unbelievable. I mean, they, they, they you know, I'm like he had shit in there that there's no way that he would have known other than Don Klein telling him. It was a railroad job, you know, it really was. And it's like, it was, it was crazy. It, it really was. It was like the whole thing. And they hated us so much. And they hated Allison because like you said, she was a woman and she was super aggressive, you know, and, and Don had Brenda Beadle, you know, who, who was also like, you know, Brenda was a pretty strong willed woman. You know, she was his, his second chair, you know, and, and, you know, Brenda would put up a fight. You know, so it was like when it came to Allison, though, they just wanted her off that case. You know, like there was nothing that was done by her. Like we, we, he a hundred percent would have won that on appeal. Like that was a total violation of our client's sixth amendment right to counsel, private counsel of his choice. A hundred percent. They just removed her in the middle of a death penalty case on some bullshit. You know, like it was like. Oh, oh, you're going to give her shit after like Don and his fireside chats and, you know, three years of the press just convicting our guy. And we say one thing on the news to try to even it out a little bit before trial. And you're going to remove her, you know, because we appealed it. We appealed the decision and it was it wasn't denied on its grounds. You know, they denied it on the, the fact that they said it wasn't timely, you know, so it never even got to the point where we could argue the merits of it, you know, that it was completely unconstitutional. So it's like in the book, in the book they kind of, I th- believe you said that um, Garcia didn't want you to appeal that decision to have her removed because it was only going to cause this to drag out even longer. And from that point, he just completely shut down and stopped talking. To he you did. Is that true? He completely shut down like more than, he, but he, I mean, he, at that point was like gone. You know what I mean? Like he was mentally at that point because we were two and a half years in. And again, you just have to, I want you to imagine you being stuck in a cell for 23 hours a day. No, I mean, seriously, like anybody, like just common sense dictates you're going to lose your mind, which he did, you know, like by the, because we challenged, I'm telling you, we challenged our own client's competency because he could not assist us in his own defense three times. 
you know, and like the last time, like he was, there was no way that he should have been sitting in that room in front of that jury. And they wouldn't let us explain his behavior to the jury. You know, it's like, uh, I'm sitting there, they're ignoring science. They're ignoring facts because they're looking at this guy who's like sleeping through his death penalty case. You know, it wouldn't have mattered what I said. There was no getting an acquittal on that because of his appearance, how he appeared. He appeared like he didn't give a fuck, you know, when in reality he was out of his fucking mind and completely drugged. Like they drugged it. Like they were giving him so much. Like Darren told me a story that there was a nurse, like we have to find her by the way, you know, that was the nurse that was administering the tranquilizers to our client, which is illegal. You can't, you can't do that, you know? So he was like, I mean, imagine sitting on a jury, you know, where this poor 10 year old boy's murdered and you've got some, some crazy looking fucking weirdo sitting in the courtroom sleeping. Like, imagine if you're a juror, you know, try to come over to like, try to figure any way that you could overcome that. Like in reality, you can't, it's, it's like, it wouldn't have mattered. Like the, the trial was a farce. It's like, I fought so hard only to, to never have a chance because of how our client appeared. And I, I couldn't sit there and argue to the jury that my client's been in solitary for three years, like awaiting trial. And so, yeah, it was, it was a tough case. It really was, you know, but the thing that I regret the most is it appears that, you know, they just completely ignore his, his mental state. And it sounds like, like he didn't have, like his appeals weren't filed. Like this guy's appeal, like he had four slam dunk. There would have been a retrial issues. Like I, there's not a doubt in my mind. Like it would have gone to the Supreme court. Like is no one in Nebraska. Like he wouldn't have won at the appellate level or the Supreme court of Nebraska level, but at the federal level, the Supreme court of the United States, if they would have taken it, they would have, they would have remanded it back for trial. There's no doubt. Like, cause that, that, that issue of removing Allison, yeah, there was just so many things that were done that were just not allowed. It was like, it was like getting good old Boyd, like I've never seen before, you know, and they just, they hated us and they really hated Allison. Like Allison's motion work in that case was epic. Like, I mean, she papered them to death with motions, you know, I mean, we filed Is everything. going to be on the podcast? Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. Hell yeah. Big time. <laughs> finally going to get her say and you know no one's going to be able to stop uh, uh her from being able to say her piece so yeah she's 100 percent going to be on the podcast a lot i mean shit she was my trial partner that, definitely i'm looking forward to it and i'm glad that i had a chance to sit down and talk to you about this case because i know i was biased going in but you've definitely opened my eyes to a lot of different things here and i can't wait to hear your podcast on this case and I'm awesome. sure my listeners will want to hear it too because I, I know that we all probably just thought that he was guilty and maybe he is, maybe he isn't. I don't know, but um, you definitely put up a good fight. From It'll certainly give you guys something to think about. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's sure, that's all sure. I can ask, right. you know? I can't say I had four pages of questions and I think you, in all of your talking, answered almost all of them. <laughs> Finished. Um, why don't you tell us where we can find you, your website, your social medias, your Twitter and all that stuff. And, uh, cool. and we can wrap it yeah. up. Yeah. So, um, yeah, again, the name of the pod is defense diaries. Um, we're on all the, all the platforms, you know, Apple, Spotify, everything. Um, our website is www.defensediaries.com. Um, our Facebook and Instagram handle are at defense diaries. 
Our Twitter, uh, our Twitter handle is at defense underscore diaries. I believe, I think, yeah, I think it's underscore. Somebody had actually taken defense diaries. (laughs) Yeah. So, but yeah, I think it'll show up. It will. It will definitely. Um, and then, you know, we're, we're messing like it's, I'm kind of an old man to be messing with TikTok, but I'm trying. (laughs) So that's, uh, at defense diaries podcast, um, we're also going to be starting a YouTube channel, but it's not quite there yet. Uh, we've got some kind of cool things we're going to do with that with, um, that I think people will think is pretty interesting. Um, but that's, that's later down the road. So yeah, like we're, we're available, um, again on, on every platform and, uh, yeah, people, people seem to like the pod, you know, I'm, I'm trying to bring, um, a little bit of my listeners when I brought up that, that when we were doing the the four episodes on Anthony Garcia and I was like oh he has this podcast so like oh yeah we already listened to that <laughs> oh yeah that's it's <laughs> it's awesome you know because I think my thing is I, I just want to try to get it out there you know that and, and I like to you know because we're all in this this true crime game and you know, the one thing that I have always kind of found that was lacking was kind of like how the system works, you know what I mean? So it's like, and that's kind of important to understand. It's like, that's a big part of my pod, you know, and, and I'm not trying to come like as some kind of like condescending asshole, you know, I'm, I'm trying to break stuff down so that like when people hear phrases that they've heard probably a million times, but don't necessarily know exactly what it means, you know, like I'm just trying to kind of break it down so that they do know, you know, and it was really important for us because, you know, as you probably know, I mean, we, we did um, uncover like just an absolute bombshell in a 40 year old serial killer case that like the entire world heard a different story and, you know, and it wasn't like, and it's not a theory, you know, this isn't like a theory. These are like, we had cops disclosing this, secret that had been hidden for 40 years to us and it just blew our minds and it's a big deal you know and and it's like Gacy's dead and gone there's no bringing him back that's not the point you know the point is that they basically were able to get one of the most notorious serial killers in the face of the you know earth and the history of the United States off the streets by planting evidence you know and that's how they got him like unequivocally so And like, and we were doing that like on the run, you know what I mean? It wasn't like we figured this out two years ago and had, you know, all this time to try to figure out how to disclose it. It was like, holy shit, what do we do with this? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, how do we, because we are adamantly not being sympathetic to Gacy. You know, it's like, we can't stand Gacy. You know, like, I'm not a Gacy fan. This is not a Gacy fan club podcast. Like, it's quite the opposite. that's what, one of the things that, it sets you apart is that this isn't just a retelling of what happened. This is a whole different thing that you guys are bringing about a story that we all know about. Right. When you bring it, we really don't know. Right. Yeah. I mean, that and like, I didn't even know, you know what I mean? It's like, I went into it thinking I knew, and then it just kind of like presented itself. And, you know, these cops, they've all done like so many interviews over the last 30, 40 years, you know, it's like, there's been so much stuff on Gacy out there. So many documentaries, so many books have been written, you know, like tons and tons of stuff and they've never disclosed it. And then all of a sudden they'd all disclose it to me. And I, I guess it's because 
I had a link to the case. You know, it's like my dad was like, they felt like a kinship or, you know, or they felt like they could trust me. I, I don't know. It was, it was mind blowing though, you know, and it's maybe like, it's time. maybe, you know, and it's like, like, I don't know that they understood kind of the magnitude of what they were saying. Cause you know, the thing that like what's equally as stunning is just how the Chicago police, it was like the first thing that you said when we started talking is like how they just shit the bed with that case, you know, like he should have been off the streets in 1975. Like if Chicago police would have done anything even remotely close to an actual investigation, Casey would have been stopped in 75 with the, the Butkovich killing. Like if they would have done anything like the, that kid's parents were like, look into the, look into the, get the boss guy. You know, <laughs> he's like, he's the guy. It's like all of a sudden my kid disappeared. He's like, he's not going to disappear. He left his wallet, his, you know, it's like, and Chicago police did nothing. They would have saved 20, 26 kids if they would have done their job in 1975. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I fully, you know, if I were the parents or the family of those victims and I heard my podcast, I'd be like, man, <laughs> you know, somebody needs to be sued. But I think, unfortunately, the statute of limitations <laughs> is long over. But it was stunning to me. You know, it was like just such ambivalence or incompetence or whatever it was. It was so sad, you know, and just mm-hmm. just really shitty, you know. So they were so focused on on the shock of it all, of, of finding this guy and all of these bodies. And it was unlike anything anyone had ever seen before. That was crazy. Anyone at the time cared to even look back and say, well, how, why, how was this guy operating all this time and nobody thought to stop him? And right. It was crazy. Guy, you know? There was one reporter, um, this guy, Jay Levine, like back in 78, I saw a clip where he, he uncovered just how incompetent Chicago police were. But, you know, I mean, Chicago's a very political town, you know, and it, it's like now, like our, our, second part of the Gacy tapes is going to be us trying to really dig into, to identify the six unidentified. And also we believe that there's more victims buried in other locations, you know, and there's this whole thing with this, this property where his mother lived on Miami and Elston where Gacy was known to have been digging (laughs) in the yards you know, it's like, and they did a fake dig like in 98 or something like that, where they put a tent up, like they were under all kinds of pressure. Chicago police does not want any more bodies. You know, I mean, they just don't like, they don't, they don't want it. They don't need it. They already had shit the bed. Like they don't need more bodies from Gacy, you know? So like, it's going to be a real uphill battle for us to, and we're going to fight. We're going to fight to make it happen. Um, because there's two locations that we know of that we believe because there's no part of me that thinks that that Gacy didn't kill anybody from 72 to 75 because the way that it's playing out right now it's like after he killed the first kid the Tim McCoy kid from the Greyhound bus boy um, is how they referred to him until they identified him Um, from 72 until 75 you know there's this claim that he didn't kill anybody which is absurd like he had just gotten the taste of it you know, if McCoy was the first one. So like there's those years where the theory is that he didn't kill anybody. And that's just implausible to us. Serial killers who have gone dormant for a while or have been known to it's happened. Yeah. But this like not, not serial killers that are getting their first taste, you know, cause like Gacy's on record saying that like he had never felt more alive. Like he had never felt more powerful 
like then after he killed his first victim, you know, so that like, that's right when he's getting started. It's like when you talk about the dormancy, you know, the dormancy, that's like later. That's for guys that have gone, you know, for like a stretch like that. Cause like Gacy got most active, like after he divorced his second wife, Carol, like in 76, like in the middle of 76, like that's when like 26 kids he killed in like a year and a half. It was insane. But, you know, that's all the stuff we're going to dig into. And in like, in the, you know, the first season's the narrative. It's kind of like, I'm, I'm getting to the point now where I'm at the trial and you know, there's probably like seven or more, you know, maybe seven, eight episodes left of the first season. It's, it's way longer than I anticipated. I should have broken the first season up into two seasons, you know, done like uh, Josh Hallmark did with true crime bullshit. Like he's got five seasons. He's on his fifth season of Israel keys. And I think I have, as many episodes in my one season of the Gacy tapes. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, if I would have known, uh, you know, if I would have known then what I know now, I, Darren and I would have said, yeah, could probably break this into three seasons just on a narrative, you know, but whatever. So yeah, that's, that's kind of it. Okay. Well, I want to thank you again so much for spending. We've been on the phone for like, Oh my goodness, it's 11.25. Yeah, it's because I never stopped talking. I'm sure Darren had to, Darren had to warn you, right? He did warn me. <laughs> See, he wasn't lying. He wasn't exaggerating. He was truthing. It was easy for me as I didn't have to go through and ask you all my questions because you answered Yeah, them. <laughs> Yeah, I just kind of right. rambled. I'm going to go ahead and um, end the recording and, we'll okay. and say our goodbyes once we get off. So thank you so much again. Thanks for having me. I will definitely let you know when this goes up. Awesome. Thanks.